a God whose thoughts are higher, whose words are deeper, and whose love is stronger. And so I ask that today that you would move and stir in our hearts and our minds, that as we read your word, that you would give us understanding and clarity, and that through that we would see and know who you are, and that that would lead us to move and to act in ways that speak of your glory, in ways that bring glory to your name. It's all these things that we ask, God, in your precious and holy name. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, so as Chris has told y'all, Mike is not here this morning. He is out uh, speaking. Uh, this is not a vacation for him. He's actually speaking four times this weekend. So uh, if, you're, uh, if you could be praying for him, if you think about it. Uh, so for today, you are stuck with me. Uh, but we will be finishing up Hebrews 11 today. Uh, so for those of you who don't know me, I'm the college pastor here at First Colony Christian Church. I also am married to Zach, uh, who y'all actually don't get to see in this service because he's with the kids. Uh, and we actually just celebrated our two-year anniversary this past August. Hooray. Uh, yes. So because I have now gathered uh, this wisdom of marriage, I, I think I've kind of got the hang of it. I thought that I would share my, my wisdom with you guys. So, um, you know, get your pens out. This is going to be good. Um, so the thing that I have learned in marriage... Uh, is that it is all about compromise. Okay. Uh, that's pretty profound, right? I don't think anybody else has told us that about marriage before because it's something new. Uh, so because I am married to Zach, uh, who's a bit different than I am, for any of y'all who know him, okay? Uh, because I'm married to Zach, I found myself sitting through several movies of the Kung Fu persuasion, uh, Bruce Lee, many, many things that my husband just loves. Uh, so I found myself watching and enduring these movies, but there, there's a quick pro quo, right? So because he has sat through, or I have sat through the Kung Fu, uh, he will from now and again have to watch a romantic comedy with me, okay? Uh, so one night, he comes home from work, uh, and he brings home a four-pack, okay, a four-pack. If y'all never been to Walmart and they have those, like, those movies that are all in one, um, a four-pack that's entitled... Epic Romance Collection, okay? <laughs> Epic Romance, this, this is going to be good, right? So I was like, okay, we've got dinner, we're going to sit down, we're going to watch these movies. Uh, yeah, so he's, he's trying to score some brownie points, but unfortunately for him, he couldn't have anticipated how horrible these movies were going to be. Like, how awful of a story they were. So we're sitting and we're a bit confused, because we're like, love, right? Love was in there? That's supposed to be a love story? So I will just give you the plot of one of them to let you know how, how awful it is. <coughs> so one of these movies, there are three characters, and there's this one mistress, and she um, has just been, her husband has just left her for this new younger woman. So she's very bitter, very upset. So she enlists the help of her lover. Yes, you heard that right. Her lover, okay, that she had while she was married. Okay, she enlists the help of her lover to seek revenge upon him by seducing the new woman that he loves, okay? So she's, she's pimping out her own lover. This is the start of the story, pimping out her own lover. Um, and then, uh, so he is a bit of a Casanova. He's a playboy. And so he's like, nah, you know, this is a little bit beneath me. He actually has his sights set on another woman. And the reason that he does is because she's very virtuous. 
She has these extreme moral convictions. And so his goal, like why she is so lofty, is she's this target that he wants to just pulverize. Like he wants to bring her down, seduce her, and lose all of her moral conviction. So this is his goal. This is the love story. This is the love story. This is what my husband has brought home saying, look how romantic I am. This is the story. Okay? Okay, guess how it ends. Like, everybody dies. Everybody dies. So I'm sitting here and I'm like, I am not watching another kung fu movie until you have redeemed yourself. You are going somewhere. And I don't, I mean, it was awful. It was absolutely awful. So I haven't watched kung fu since, since this movie, just so y'all know. Um, but the interesting thing about these movies is that, uh, I don't know if the plot sounded familiar to any of y'all, but some in the first service recognized it. These were like Academy Award nominated movies. Like, that they thought these were the great stories. This is what love is really about. This is what love is really like. This is what the world tells us is like love and marriage. But scripture seems to paint a different story, right? Like paint a different picture. They tell us that marriage and love are really about these two individuals becoming one, becoming joined. So August 15, 2009, uh, this was the day that I, my individual story was done. And the day that Zach's individual story was done. Because that was the day that we came together to be married. And so our stories became one. Because there's something mystical that happens in a marriage. Something that points beyond itself. Like we're being caught up in this great story that's bigger than us. And today, in Hebrews 11, we've been uh, in Hebrews 11 for the past three weeks... And Hebrews has taken us on a journey through a story, a very old story, a story that today will reach its own climactic shift that we must understand, we must listen to, if we're to truly understand who God is, and if we're to truly understand what faith means. So if you open your Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in front of your chair, um, underneath the seat. So Hebrews 11, we're going to start in verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Now note the shift here. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth, and all of these though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Okay, so in Hebrews 11, the floodgates have opened, and the author is telling story after story of men and women who have held on to the promise of faith. So they've, Hebrews has put us in this timeline that we, like Israel, have been rescued, okay, we've been rescued from Egypt, 
but we have not yet entered into the promised land. So we're caught in the wilderness. We're waiting to enter the promised land, but right now we find ourselves in this weird time uh, being caught in the wilderness. And so in the text today, he literally runs out of room. Like he just starts listing these heroes out in quick succession because he, he doesn't have time to go into detail. Uh, but I will, uh, just on one. Uh, so the first name that he lists is Gideon. And if you are familiar with the story, God comes to Gideon, who is about to face the Midianites. And he says, okay, Gideon, I see that army that you have. It's like 32,000, right? And he's like, yeah, okay. I think that army's a little too big. I think we need to cut it down a little bit. And Gideon's probably like, okay, well, the Midianites probably have like 30,000. So what, you want to like cut down 2,000? Is that kind of what you're thinking? And he's like, no, I want you to go out and ask every man out there, whoever's afraid, go home. Okay. So he, he does it. He goes and he asks. Uh, and 22,000 men leave. That's a lot of scared men. So uh, Gideon is left with 10,000. 10,000 men. And uh, so then God's like, okay, Gideon, uh, it's still a little too big. And he's like, are you kidding me? It's still big. Yeah, still big. So I want you to take all these men down to the river, and I want the ones who lap up the water like dogs, those are the guys that you're keeping. And the ones that cup the water and, and drink it from their hands, send those guys home. Okay, if you're wondering the same question, it is, yeah, who laps water like a dog? Who goes to a river and dunks their head first? Nobody. These are the fat kids on Little League. These are the people you don't want on your team. But God says, these are the ones that I want you to take. These are the ones who are going to be your fierce warriors. And he's left with 300. This, by the way, is not where the inspiration for the movie 300 came from. Just in case you're getting confused. Okay, this is not Sparta. These are not chiseled warriors. These are people who lick straight from a river. These are those 300. Okay? Uh, and even so, that movie tells us that 300 versus many thousand, they all die. They all die. I hope I didn't spoil the movie for you, but they all die. Okay? 300 versus several thousand is not good odds. I am no military strategist. Okay? I think I'm pretty good at strategy with Settlers of Catan. Some people may know. Uh, but, you know, I don't know too much about war, but 300 versus 30,000, I think they're all going to die. So, okay. God comes again and he says, 300, that's good. That's, that's perfect. So I want you to go down to the Midianite camp, and I want you to bring trumpets and jars. Okay, trumpets and jars. Okay, so I, and I go down to the Midianite camp, and I want you to blow the trumpets, and I want you to break the jars. This is a ridiculous plan. Okay, this is about as ridiculous as thinking that you can take a city by walking around walls and blowing trumpets. Is anybody getting deja vu? God seems to historically like to do crazy things like this. So they go down to the camp, and they obey. They blow the trumpets, and they break jars. And the Midianites kill each other. Their swords are turned against each other, and Israel wins. The point, again, is that it's God's victory. The point is that God is one who delivers his promises, that we can put our faith and our trust in him, because he is a God who can take a 30,000 army and make them turn against themselves without breaking a sweat. Okay? So not only is God faithful to deliver on his promises, he promised Gideon victory and he gave him victory, but Gideon had to act on that promise, right? He had to act in faith, hoping that God would deliver. So Gideon begrudgingly sends away 31,700 men, okay? 
He tells the rest of the 300 to bring jars and trumpets and is like, okay, uh, God, I'm, I'm trusting you. But he had to act on those promises. Why would he do that? Because faith moves. Faith moves. Going back to verse 33, if you'll look. Who through faith, what? Sat and twiddled their thumbs? No. Conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, and on and on it goes. Faith, by definition, is not static, but active. Um, I think this is what James chapter 2 is trying to get at, that faith without works is dead. This is a very controversial passage. Uh, The text literally says that you're justified by your works, so very strong language. Um, and a lot of people have not cared for that text, uh, including one of the great fathers of the Reformation, Martin Luther. He called James the epistle of straw. So not nice words from one of the fathers of the Reformation. Uh, he wanted to exclude it from the canon, just didn't like James at all. Um, and I hate to say this, uh, but Luther read it wrong. I feel a little bit dirty. Uh, saying that Luther, Martin Luther, uh, read James too wrong, but he did. He didn't understand what works is about. And we today cannot make the same error. Because neither the author of James nor the author of Hebrews, having concluded that faith is action-oriented, neither would then conclude that it is our works and our actions that save us. That's to reverse the point or to miss it entirely. Works will never produce faith, but faith will always produce works. So Gideon you know, is not going to his comrades, you know, hey man, I saw that jar that you broke. Totally made that mini night go crazy, right? I saw that. Yeah, good job. No, it's obviously God who's saving. It's obviously God who's providing the victory. So it has always been a story about God. No one, by the way, in the Old Testament would say that works save them either. What are our examples in chapter 11? They're examples from the Old Testament. It's always been a story about God saving. It's always been a story about faith. And the response to that, to God's story, is a faith that stirs us to act, of faith that stirs us to act. If we remember, uh, for those of us uh, who were here when Mike went through Micah, it was quite a long time ago, I know, uh, but when he went through it, uh, why was Israel under judgment? Because they had neglected the poor in their community, right? Well, why did they do that? Because their hearts had turned away from God. It was a lack of faith in that God then in turn led to a lack of action for the poor. They said, we have increased our lands, we have become successful, and so they, the faith and the trust that they put in was in the God of self, in the God of self. So how can I break this down? What does this look like today in 21st century American uh, Christianity? And I would say to you that particularly um, in evangelical Christianity, specifically in the Bible Belt, it is very easy for us to grow in knowledge, yet not in faith and character. It's very easy for us to grow in knowledge, but not in faith and character. So it is easy for me to sit uh, on every Sunday morning uh, and hear Scripture speak to my heart, but to not have my heart change at all. So I, I am one with struggles. My heart leads me astray. I will never uh, come up here and say that I have it all figured out, except obviously in jest. Um, And so I know that I struggle. I know that I have issues. Things that God 
requires me to confess, things that he requires repentance for, and sometimes things that, let's face it, require me seeking professional help. Things that, because of my faith in God, produce actions. This goes back to uh, God's moral commands about his commands of who we are to be, the type of person we're to become. And we have to get rid of some of these things in our heart. But if I sit uh, every Sunday and I don't let any of it change me, if I don't seek help, if I don't seek those actions, well, the question is, why? Why? Why would I do that? Why would I not seek help? So maybe the surface uh, issue, maybe the, the reason on the surface would be, well, I'm embarrassed. I don't want to admit that I have issues. I don't want to. I don't want to admit that I struggle. Uh, we. I, I don't know about you, but I grew up in a family where it's like pick yourself up by your bootstraps, um, and everything's going to be okay, and put a bandaid on it and walk it off. So, you know, I don't want to admit that I have these struggles because I'm embarrassed. Well, let's go a bit deeper than that. What's what's even uh, more below the level there? I think maybe pride. Okay, but I I still want to go a bit deeper. What is the true reason? And I would suggest to you that maybe the real reason is because we think, well, I don't know that God can really heal me. I don't know. My, my struggles and my issues, my junk, is probably beyond his scope to heal. I, I just don't think that God maybe even wants to mess with me. It's, it's a lack of faith. Lack of action Lack of action reveals a lack of faith. But the good news is that scripture tells us a different story. A story about a very powerful God who is also very merciful. A God who, it is said of scripture, that he who began a good work in you is what? Faithful to complete it. So there is no need for a lack of faith there because God has said from the very beginning that I am going to complete you. You are going to be well and whole. I will make sure of it. So faith moves. It isn't static. The text continues in verse 35. But there's going to be a thematic shift uh, that we have to take note of, as I said earlier, for really to truly understand who God is and what faith in action looks like. So if you'll again look in your Bibles to verse 35. We're going to start in the second part of the verse. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Okay, many people throughout scripture have suffered for the cause of God. So this passage could be applied to many people that we see in the Old Testament. Particularly, um, who it would most readily be applied to would be God's special messengers, his prophets. Um, And so what we see is that oftentimes the the men and women who are the most uh, bold, who go out purposely seeking the word of God are usually the ones who are met with the most scorn. Met with the most scorn. So Teresa of Avila was the 16th century mystic, uh, and she was confronting God about the sufferings that she was experiencing. 
uh, very upset and just like, I don't understand why these things are coming on. Uh, I am actively pursuing your will. What is the deal? Um, and God responds by saying, Teresa, this is how I deal with my friends. And Teresa replies, well, then God, don't be very surprised if you don't have many. Because that's a natural response, right? We feel betrayed when we are actively pursuing the things of God. And it seems that around every corner, suffering and scorn lies in our wake. We feel betrayed. Not only does this text speak of the prophets, but I believe as well, uh, as well several scholars do as well, that this is talking about the Maccabees. And if that name does not ring a bell, that's okay. Because uh, this is about a text that we don't have in our Bibles. Uh, it is found in the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox canon. Uh, so what it, the body of work is called the intertestamental literature. And so in this, it's uh, after the Old Testament and before the New. That's kind of where it's sandwiched in the text. Um, and so in Maccabees, particularly 2 Maccabees 7, we have this story. And it's an incredible story about seven sons and their mother who um, are tr seeking to not break the law of Moses. Right now, the Jews are under the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes, who's this really bad Greek emperor, and he uh, has desecrated the Jewish temple. He has forced them to break the Mosaic laws, and he's persecuted the Jews relentlessly. Um, and so here specifically, the Greeks are trying to get these seven brothers to eat unclean meat and to break the law of Moses. And one by one, each brother uh, refuses and submits himself willingly to torture and death. And it's a really incredible story because one by one they each say that, uh, they each talk about the power and the faith of God, that though they may kill my body, God will rise me up, raise me up to a better life. So particularly one brother raises his hands and he says, I got these from heaven, I got these hands from God, and because of God I disdain them, so I count my life as nothing. And yet because of him I hope to receive them back again. And he walks to his death. And so, I am not a mother. Uh, I, I have a mother, but I, I, there are things about motherhood that I don't understand, okay, uh, that you guys could probably teach me. Uh, but as I'm reading this story, I cannot imagine being a mother and watching son after son submit himself to not only death, but torture first. I cannot imagine how much my heart would break seeing my son submit himself to that kind of pain. But the mother does this really incredible thing. She whispers words of encouragement in their ears before they go to their deaths. And she says, my son, God sees. God sees what you're doing. He sees your sacrifice, and he will honor it. I don't know how, but I know that God will be faithful to his promise. So verse 35, the shift in verse 35 tells us that faith is costly. Faith is costly. So perhaps Hebrews is misleading us. Because we seem to hear a different message throughout church today. Something about, uh, you know, Jesus wants my best life now. I think there's a board game. So, you know, maybe God, all he wants is our happiness, right? Like, maybe this is, maybe Hebrews has, has misguided us. And maybe Jesus has a different thing to say. Well, let's turn, if you have your Bibles, to Matthew 10. And let's see what Jesus actually has to say about it. Um, so Jesus is speaking to his disciples in chapter 10, and he's preparing them to go out into, uh, into the mission field, okay? He's preparing them to, to follow the path that he himself is going down. So let's see what he has to say. 
uh, chapter 10, verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Verse 21. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and the children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So unfortunately, uh, I would say that Jesus also seems to mimic the idea in Hebrews that those who follow in his footsteps will be met with opposition. Will be met with opposition. Uh, And that God is telling us that though the rest of the world sees us as garbage, okay, sees us as refuse, he calls us worthy. Verse 38 these men and women who are destitute, wandering about in skins of sheep and goats, okay, these are poor people, God says the world's not worthy of you. He's telling us a different story. And Jesus, when he comes on the scene, starts talking about the way to become great is to become the greatest servant, and the way to gain your life is to lose it. It seems that the new age that Jesus is inaugurating seems to play by a different set of rules. That he's redefining terms like power and victory with service and suffering. Because ultimately, faith tested through suffering bears witness to the beginning of God's new world. Faith tested through suffering bears witness to the beginning of God's new world. I think many would agree with me that those who seek to effect change are often met with resistance. So, Uh, If anyone of you have ever served on a board or have uh, been with a group of people who have been used to doing things in a certain way, and you say, hey, why don't we change this? Why don't we do this a new way? It is often met with resistance, right? It is often met with resistance. Um, And this has played out on a much larger scale uh, with what we would... uh, We've seen in history, so the 1960s, the civil rights, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. uh, is trying to bring a world of change that says that oppression based off of race is no longer a part of God's new world. Okay, Uh, Desmond Tutu in the apartheid in South Africa does the same thing. And so those who seek to effect change, those who boldly proclaim that the world has changed, something is different, and we can no longer play by those rules anymore of oppression and injustice, they're often met with resistance. They're often met with resistance. People refuse to join in. They want to do things the old way. And so again, this brings us back to the idea that Hebrews is telling us that right now we are caught in between the inauguration of the promise and the final consummation of that promise. We're in the wilderness. We've received the promise, but we have not yet entered into rest. We have not yet entered into the promised land. And so if you know the story in Exodus, the wilderness was a really hard time for the Israelites. 
They kept on complaining. They didn't know where their food was coming from. And time and time again, they would say, it would just be better if we went back to Egypt. It would just be better if we went back. Okay, 400 years of slavery. They've been out here for 40 days, and they want to go back to slavery? They want to go back to oppression? Because sometimes that way is easier. Right now, we're caught in between the inauguration of the promise and the final consummation. And we stand right now in tension. We're in tension with the rest of the world. Romans 8 would say that creation is groaning, as in the pains of, of labor, that uh, it longs for the redemption of humanity and the redemption of creation. And that this process, okay, this redemption has started already. It has started with Jesus. He has become our prototype. His resurrection has become our prototype. And when he returns, all these things will be done away with. Oppression, injustice, sin, death, out. Out of God's old creation. And we, like Jesus, will be redeemed. will be resurrected to new life in the same way he was. Therefore, right now while I am living in this tension, this means that there are things that I do right now that don't make sense to the rest of the world. There are things that I do that don't make sense to the rest of the world. So every week we participate in communion, right? So we break off bread and we dip it in grape juice and we say that we're remembering Christ's sacrifice, his death, and that with his sacrifice and resurrection he has started something new. He has changed things. But to someone looking in, that looks a bit odd. That looks a bit weird. Baptism. We put on a bathing suit and a white robe. Uh, thankfully, we aren't doing it in the same way that the early church did it, which is butt naked. So we get a bathing suit and a white robe, and we dunk ourselves in a pool, or a body of water, and we're saying that our old way of life is done. Our old way of life is done, and we've been resurrected to a new life in Him. That our old identities are dead, and our new identity is caught up in Christ. We bear witness to the world that something has changed. And that looks a bit odd. That looks a bit different. We come together every Sunday and we sing songs that say, this is no sacrifice, that everything that I do, all of these things that I'm giving up, it doesn't matter because I have you. It looks a bit odd. This also means that there are things right now, that there are tragedies that you and I experience that we know in our bones should never be. Should never be. For many of you who know, Zach and I lost two very good friends uh, over around Christmas, around January. Um, and it, it was literally due to a freak accident where there was uh, just a patch of ice and two of our friends are gone, gone from this world. And our hearts cry out, this isn't right, this is wrong. We know in our bones this should never have happened. What's going on? Why are we experiencing these trials? Because we are caught in the tension. We are caught in tension. The very question of why do bad things happen to good people haunts our thoughts and fills our bookshelves. It seems that the entire world is asking this question, that they know that something is not right, that there's injustice and death that should never be. And they're asking this question, why? And I wish that I could say scripture answered that question, but it doesn't seem to do that. Instead, what scripture does is it tells a story. It tells a story of a God who creates a good creation that has been infected by evil, and that that same God 
has relentlessly, without fail, stopped at nothing to rid us of his creation. He says, I see it, and I am getting rid of it. And that process started with Jesus. That promise was fulfilled in Jesus. So this tells us that our faith is placed in a God who seeks to rescue his creation. This is a truth that we have to hold on to often despite our circumstances. Because everywhere we look, it seems like the powers of evil are still holding, still have a death grip on the world. But faith, as Hebrews 11.1 1 states, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. Hebrews 11, 1 and 2, faith is costly. Verse 39 through 40, we are almost done. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What is the author saying here? What does he mean? Perhaps the author is trying to get at the truth that you and I are caught up in a story. One that is much bigger than ourselves. One that has started long before us and one that will continue on after us. Perhaps the author is trying to say that true, real, lasting faith is grounded in the story of God. Is grounded in the story of God. Perhaps it means that the themes of rescue and redemption that I see in every action-adventure movie point to the ultimate rescue mission. Perhaps the themes of good and evil point to the ultimate and sovereign good God, who is, whose mission is to defeat the ultimate evil, sin, and death. That the themes of love and marriage point to a God whose ultimate desire is to join heaven and earth as one. So when Zach and I got married... We held on to one thing throughout the entire process. Uh, we wanted our wedding to be a party. This is not because Zach and I are party animals. You can ask anyone who knows us. This is not who we are. Uh, our idea of a good time is ping pong and settlers of Catan. So at our wedding, uh, you can ask anyone who is there that when the music started, okay, when the music started, we did not get off that dance floor. And I was not going to get off of it because I was so full of love and joy that I had to express it, and I wanted everyone else to share in it. So um, we, we loved each other, we were happy about it, and we wanted everyone else to share in our happiness. And our photographer, who had gotten to know us through the process, uh, he came up to us as we were dancing and uh, was like, you know, I didn't have you guys pegged as dancers. I didn't, I didn't really think that you guys were like that, and I was like, well, I don't know if you can see the moves that I'm doing right now, but you would be right, because any other time that there's music going on, my inclination is not to get out and dance. Okay, I'm a white string bean. I look like it on the dance floor. So I, I don't like to look like a fool, so I usually do not get out on a dance floor. But that day, I did not care. I absolutely did not care, because I was so full of love, and I, wanted, I just wanted to move. And I wanted everyone else to get out on that dance floor and dance with me. Um, and I think this points to something about the very nature of love, that it seeks participants. 
that it seeks people to share in it. So then it is no surprise that God, who is love, seeks us to participate in his story. Seeks participants in his story. God invites us to participate in his story of redemption. If you look in the text, Hebrews 11 is filled with people. God seems to like to work through people and through history because he allows us to participate and enjoy. Not only does he allow us to participate, but as verse 40 says, he also gives us an honored status. An honored status is ones who have received the promise. First Peter would say it like this, that concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So the prophets are seeking, they're wondering when God's promise is going to be fulfilled. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. So God is telling us that we have received the promise. We now understand the plan, the things that the prophets reached out and looked for, the things in which the angels long to see and understand, we have. We have received the promise, which is Jesus. He is the fulfillment of the promise. He is the way that God has said he is going to fix his world. We've received the promise. Now, this honored status, the, the thing that we have to hold on to is that the reason that we have this status, the reason that we have received a promise, okay, and the people of old have not, is not due to any fault on their own or any merit of ours. But our status is based solely on the grace and providence of God. If you look in the text, it, it reveals it. That since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. This also does not mean that the people of old will never receive the promise. Simply that they had to wait for us. That God, in his plan, had allowed us to become part of this painting. That without us it would remain incomplete. Simply because of his grace. Simply because of his providence. Our status, again, cannot lead us to pride. But the response is humble gratitude and obedience. So think again of the Maccabees. You have seven brothers who, without flinching, go to their torture and death, and they don't know how God's going to fix the world. They, don't, they, they hold on to the truth that, I don't understand it, but somehow I know that God is going to raise me back up again, that the wickedness in my heart is going to be dealt with, and I faithfully hold on to this God who has promised it. I know he's going to come through. How much more how much more should you and I be willing to accept the cost of following Jesus? When we have received the promise, we know and understand the plan in full. We've been given this hope. First Peter and Hebrews both naturally conclude with an exhortation. So because we have this faith, because we understand that we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, we naturally move into action. He says, let's take up the banner of faith. Let's become who we're meant to be in Christ. That is the natural conclusion of the text. And all that I have to say today crumbles. It absolutely crumbles if our faith is not placed in this story that Hebrews is telling us. 
because faith as simply an intellectual or a moral exercise will always disappoint us. Will always disappoint us. If our faith is not placed in Jesus, who became human, who died on a cross and resurrected three days later, as Paul would say, we've been duped. We are the most pitied of men. If this story is not true, then let's all pick up a different hobby. I don't know. I always want to learn how to sail. So maybe, you know, if this story is not true, then faith as an intellectual or moral exercise outside the parameters of the story of God will always disappoint us. This does not stop people from trying. Uh, if you're familiar with a guy named Kant, uh, I don't know if you've ever read any of his stuff, really dry, really boring. Uh, but Kant decided that he could come up with a way, okay, to a moral equation, if you will, that would get outside of this sticky business of being involved with this God character who seemed to do all these inappropriate things, like uh, do miracles and intervene in history and get angry. Like, that's not characteristic of a God, so why don't we just make this moral equation that I filter everything through, and through that I'm like, okay, I do this and I don't do this. So faith became this kind of moral equation. And then Nietzsche came along after him and brilliantly said, well, if that's your faith, then why don't you just get rid of the God element altogether? Because you obviously don't need him, you have this moral equation. If that's what your faith is, then why don't you just, I mean, get rid of the God element? This produces uh, and brings on the enlightenment, which is the uh, worship of reason, if you will. So um, we, through the enlightenment, we had just come through this um, time of war where um, religions were just killing each other off. So you have the Catholics and the Protestants and the Thirty Years' War, and they're just going at each other uh, and killing a lot of Jews in between. And it was a very messy, awful time. And so the people of the Enlightenment were like, wouldn't it be great if we could take off all these religious trappings and if we could simply uh, be reasonable people, let's simply worship rationality, if we can simply educate people, that will solve the problems of the world. Okay, we don't need God, we just need, we just need education. That will get rid of this wickedness that seems to be plaguing us. So through the Enlightenment, what the Enlightenment has given us is eugenics, is the atom bomb, and the Holocaust. It seems that, that faith as an intellectual and moral exercise can't get rid of the wickedness in our hearts. Can't get rid of the wickedness in our hearts. And so I fear that many in church today uh, treat faith in this way. Not intentionally, but, but they, they view faith as a moral exercise. So um, if I can skate around the really big issues of sin um, and keep my nose clean, then I'll be all right in the end. God then becomes this eternal scorekeeper, this cosmic killjoy who awaits with fire and brimstone anytime you mess up. But as long as we stick to this equation, then we're okay. All the while, we wonder why our hearts are still wicked why we can't control our anger, why we can't put others before ourselves. Because faith, as simply this exercise, will not get rid of the wickedness. It will always disappoint us. Because true faith belongs to the true story. To the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who is worthy. The God who delivers on his promises. That faith will not disappoint us. Not only does God deliver on his promises, but he comes to us, meek and lowly, and he says, you're mine, and I love you. And though the world says that you're garbage, the world is not worthy of you. The world's not worthy of you. 
and he comes to us and he lets us participate in the story. And it seems that marriage itself just kind of reveals something about God, that, that we long to enter and participate in the union of the Trinity itself, that we long to be caught up in the story. And just as Zach's and my story ended and became one, your story and mine have ended. And they are now caught up in God's story of redemption, of what heaven and earth will fully be joined. And so I won't get ahead of myself. I will not start preaching into Mike's passage that he will come back and preach next week in Hebrews 12. But I can't help but naturally conclude with the author as well that he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, let us run with perseverance, looking to Jesus. And that's the crucial part, looking to Jesus. Because true faith belongs to the true story, belongs to his story. So I encourage and I challenge you that now that we know what the promise is, that we have Jesus, let us run with endurance. Let us stay strong while we're in the wilderness through faith. Let's pray.